I'm Carol Cohn, and welcome to Purpose 360, the podcast that unlocks the power of purpose to ignite business and social impact. As we begin the new year, climate challenges around the globe are immense, almost seemingly too large to address. Yet there is hope as young social impact activists and climate leaders are taking on these challenges in very individual ways. Our next two shows showcase four incredible One Young World Ambassadors who recently attended COP28. They will share their personal commitments to advancing climate solutions through their foundations and their organizations. You will hear about their life journeys and their confident, dynamic voices that they bring to their overall work, as well as you'll hear about their unique experiences and point of view of COP28. They'll share, perhaps for the first time in 28 COP gatherings, that youth voices and ideas are beginning to be taken seriously as part of the solution, not just voices in protest to climate devastation. But before we dive into their experiences in Dubai, let's explore the transformative journey of being a One Young World Ambassador. One Young World is a global community of over 17,000 of the brightest young talents from every country and sector working collaboratively to accelerate social impact. As ambassadors, they are part of a unique network that spans every industry and includes activists, humanitarians, world and business leaders, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, politicians, and innovators. What unites them all is a shared desire to make the world better through ethical, empathetic leadership. They believe that every challenge has a solution, and with bold and courageous action, they are actively working to make their shared vision a reality. These are four deeply committed and powerful young women in our next two episodes. Their journeys are illuminating and inspiring to the climate work of young and old. Our collective future critically depends on them. So let's get started. These will be some of our best podcasts of the year. Trust me. Joining me is Ankun Biamadorj, and she is co-founder and director of operations at Breathe Mongolia. And then also joining us is Anna Staley-Radier, and she's director of climate transparency at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, or as those of us who know the organization, WBCSD. So where we like to begin is ask both Ankun and Anna, um, a brief introduction of your background, because your backgrounds are extraordinary. So we'll start with you, Ankun. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so my name is Ankun. I'm from Mongolia, but I grew up in the States and Mongolia. And as you mentioned, I lead an organization called Breathe Mongolia Cleaner Coalition. It's a nonprofit based in Mongolia, but also registered in the United States. Um, and our main objective is to empower communities, um, people and organizations to have the resources to eradicate air pollution in Mongolia. And air pollution in Mongolia is a very 
complex society-wide issue. It's been found that air pollution levels, especially in the winter, exceed WHO uh, safe levels by 27 to 35 times. And in my home city, um, one in 10 deaths are attributable to air pollution. So it's a really, really huge issue. And how we're trying to tackle it is a really community-rooted framework to transform the, the systems, the sectors, and the policies, and the actors that are needed to bring about uh, clean air. And what we do really in the day-to-day -day falls into three rounds of operations. The first is we raise awareness and we educate the public so that they have the resources about the science and the policies to first protect themselves now and over the life course so we can prevent disease, but also so they can be at the forefront of policy change and accountability seeking. The second uh, round of operations is we build coalitions, cross-sectoral and multi-level coalitions of organizations and actors who work together. And then the third thing that we do is we tackle air pollution as a really cross-cutting issue with um, synergies with climate change, uh, driving dress transition, um, strengthening the health system, et cetera. That's, am that's amazing. And, and how long have you been doing this? So I've been doing this for about five years now, but our organization has been established officially for about four years now. Terrific. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, Anna, um, please give um, a little uh, introduction to your background. Thank you so much for having uh, having me, Carol. And it's great to also uh, get to know Ancuna a little bit better. It sounds incredible what you're doing on the ground in Mongolia. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more about that. Um, I'm Anna. I'm based in Paris. Um, I'm British um, by background. And I have sort of have a bit of a wild history. <laughs> I used to be an intellectual property lawyer. I used to be a consultant. Um, but I sort of found my way into sustainability a couple of years ago. Uh, really starting in the ocean space and then making my way into climate. I now co-lead the climate work at the World Business Council for uh, Sustainable Development, uh, which is really all about, and sort of that's also the red thread um, in my history. Uh, it's really all about sort of how you can create uh, systems change through collaboration. So I love to bring people together. I love to be strategic about how we can tackle some cutting edge topics uh, and how we can really accelerate um, what business is doing to advance uh, around climate. Super. That's great. Um, I would love to know from both of you, what was that um, spark that got you really passionate about social impact? I think the first time that I got really, or I saw someone really passionate about social impact was I was really lucky to meet a great um, social activist and advocate when I was in the 11th grade. Um, her name is Ad Sterlich, and she's also one of the co-founders of my organization. Um, and so that was the first time that I saw a really passion in someone. But um, the point where social impact became not an option, but a necessity was when uh, a very close family member was affected by air pollution. And the sort of confusion and frustration and disappointment and anger that follows. And that kind of ignited me researching and learning more and trying to because otherwise you're just kind of left hopeless. And so trying to channel that uh, negative experience into positivity was something that really sparked something about social impact. Sort of from an early age, um, sustainability has been sort of part of my my life. But it was really quite late on, actually, sort of when I was already, you know, in my in my early 30s, when I was already working as a consultant, I traveled to Bali. And I um, I remember going to the beach and on the way I sort of saw people tipping rubbish into the river. 
uh, that sort of led down to the ocean. And when I got to the beach, the beach was covered in plastic rubbish. So that was really my in into this topic was around sort of that plastic pollution and seeing what it actually, you know, sort of does and, and what, what it does to the oceans. And when you look at, you know, you start digging into the topic, much as, the, as Ankun said, once, once you start digging into the topic, you discover more and more things that interest you. And when you start doing more on sustainability and getting interested and working on it, you know, it, it doesn't stop there. It goes to food and how you consume and how you live and how you work. And so it's almost a snowball. And, um, Coming together at that time, you know, was sort of more or less the same time actually that I was introduced to the One Young World community. Um, together with different people from McKinsey, we went to the One Young World Summit in London. And just to see that you're not alone on that journey, there are others who really have that same sense of, I can make a difference. I can make a change, uh, was incredibly motivating and really sort of made me get even more into this space. Um, and that's a great segue, Anna, in, into a little bit about One Young World. Um, I'm curious about both of you, how long you have been involved with it um, as an ambassador. It, is it formal, informal role? Um, so just share with me your experiences with One Young World. It's an amazing organization. Being an ambassador basically just means that you've gone through the One Young World not just, but it means that you've gone through, through to one of the One Young World Summits and you've experienced what it means to come together with other change makers who really want to make a difference. Um, and you're really um, sort of driven to take that change into the world and have that impact yourself. Um, you know, they, they really create a sense of community, but it's, it's very action focused. And I've really appreciated that, uh, that, that ability to, yeah, to draw the strength out of that community of people who want to make a change. That's a great, to draw the strength out of the community. So, Ankun, how about your engagement with One Young World? My One Young World engagement started in 2022. So, last year I attended the summit in Manchester. And becoming a part of the community was literally a turning point for both me and my organization. Because um, One Young World hosts this challenge called Lead 2030 Challenge. And it's basically... A competition uh, for change makers uh, supported by different companies. And the one that I competed for was for SDG3, Health and Wellbeing, supported by AstraZeneca. And uh, we won that challenge. And at the time, it was the largest grant that we, that we had ever received. And it enabled us to implement the first really on the ground project, the largest project that we had ever implemented. And then attending the summit um, and meeting all the inspiring people allowed me to dream bigger of what I could do and what my organization could do and the sort of potential that there was for both connection, um, to work together for collaboration. Over the past year that I've been an ambassador, I've continually gotten incredible support um, in terms of connecting me to opportunities, connecting me to people who are attending the same events, um, like COP, and then even nominating me for, you know, other things that I might be eligible for. And so it's a really big network, but at the same time, Everyone's experience is so personalized and there's there's so much connection and connectivity that happens. So both me and Ankun have a very different sort of background and also sort of very different uh, you know, uh, work that we do. And one of the things that One Young World is incredibly good at is connecting across the different types of impact that people are having. So, you know, I was able to support actually on the social side, uh, somebody from India with mentorship based on sort of all the business background I have. Um, so sort of making those connections, you know, sort of an understanding how all of us are different and how sort of the sum of all the parts makes up something really special. I think that's where One Young World is really, really good at. And how do they do that? Because I think there's a learning here for other organizations. I work with so many other organizations. Sustainable Brands comes to mind or Net Impact as others. But what's their secret sauce, if, if you don't mind sharing? 
get them early. I think um, when, you know, sort of young leaders are coming through their sort of the developing phases of their careers, I think that's the, the real good point to come in and, and really, you know, connect them to those who have a little bit more experience in certain things. Um, but then also valuing that diversity and sort of not, you know, not all of us are so different. I mean, if you look at the ambassadors, you're not going to find sort of identical profiles. Every time I meet an ambassador, you know, we'll have a loss in common because we care about having an impact. But that's sort of where it ends usually, um, which is really good because it means that there's a, that diversity in thought and the diversity in perspectives. Yeah, I completely agree with Anna. I think it's that embrace of the diversity of what it means to be a leader. I think when I was younger, there was a, a certain archetype of a leader that I saw and I didn't see that in myself. But what they mean by leaders is not only you know, uh, innovators in technology, um, but also, you know, policy entrepreneurs and org entrepreneurs and people who can bring different um, ideas together to come up with new ideas. And I think it's about creating that space where people can go beyond a networking sort of, hello, this is my name and it's my name card, but getting into a point of really uh, creating together and brainstorming together and coming up with new ideas together. And they do that in such a short amount of time with a summit. And they and then they can keep us engaged afterwards. I think that's the secret. That is a secret sauce. It's it's not a one off. It's you're you're truly coming into a community. So I, let's um, pivot to COP twenty eight. Um, it's recently you were just recently there, and so I would love to know your experiences. I mean, it was massive. I'd love to hear from from both of you. How did you really you know focus? And make sure that your voice was heard within the appropriate groups. COP was massive. I didn't have that much trouble in so, sort of in terms of making my voice heard. I work a lot on supply chain emissions, transparency, sort of trying to get companies to understand the impact they're having having in their value chains. So that's a topic. It's it's quite a hot topic at the moment. And you know, obviously, working in a in a sort of business community, it's not so difficult sort of getting the opportunity to, to exchange with the right people. I think what I really regretted was I couldn't go beyond my little bubble because there was so much on at the same time. So I was overwhelmed by the amount of different, you know, opportunities and many things that I wanted to listen to and I wanted to go to to sort of expand what I do and expand my, you know, my understanding of this whole space and how the different bits fit together. It was exhausting, I'm not going to lie, but it was also exhilarating uh, in the sense that I feel like this COP was the the first COP where I really felt like there was a lot of progress being made on the ground. Um, and I don't mean this in terms of the outcomes of the, of the negotiations, but more in terms of sort of, you know, what we were doing and who we were bringing together and how we were all coming together, um, in the business community and that sense of, um, or the palpable sense of, of, of change and, you know, that sort of we're really willing to, to go the extra mile going forward. So for me, it was a really positive experience. Um, but it's, yeah. You know, it was it was absolutely exhausting. And I don't think we can continue the way we did this year. And, and I'm just curious. You said there was a palpable sense of change. What did that feel like? I think it's the fact that everyone's like, this is ridiculous. You know, this is a trade fair. This is not, you know, this is not why COP was set up. This is not why business shows up to COP. You know, how can we how can we be in a place where, you know, we can really understand what's happening and bring different voices together and make sure everyone can hear those voices as well? rather than start creating these pockets. And I had a lot of discussions with people about is the COP process as it is fit for purpose? You know, how does business show up to COP? How can business support policymakers do 
policymakers even understand, you know, the struggles that business leaders face and vice versa. So there's a lot of sort of discussion on the fringes of it. Uh, obviously, the media also discussed a lot, you know, what was sort of wrong or not wrong with the COP. But that was sort of that, that palpable sense of change. The reason I say that is because a lot of us got together in the sidelines and we're saying, okay, what has to change? This We cannot continue like this. We cannot have 200,000 people next year. It's just not what COP is there for. That's very, very profound. Um, Ankun? Uh, for me, it was my first COP. So it was very, very overwhelming. Um, I think it was truly weighing opportunity cost literally every single minute because they're, you know, up to five events plus happening at the same time and you're interested in three of them. Uh, for me, the way that I participated was I was actually a youth negotiator. So I'm part of civil society in my day to day, but um, I was involved in a program called the Climate Youth Negotiator Program, which is um, a program to train the next generation of negotiators, basically. So the people who are in the decision making spaces, who have a voice at the decision making table. Um, and it's a really pro- great program that was brought into, into Mongolia through United Nations Association of Mongolia and with the support of um, the Mongolia Ministry of Environment and Tourism. But in my case, I um, got training for six to seven months um, and then I attended my first COP, first and foremost as uh, a party, so a party delegate, so someone representing the state. And then second, of course, um, representing my organization as a civil society. And then also as a climate activist. And so, and sometimes these were really in conflicting hats to wear because there's certain things that you can and can't say as party, as someone with a party badge, because you have to, you know, represent your state and your state stances. But there are certain things that I want to say and I want to be vocal about as a representative of society and as an advocate. Trying to juggle those, I had to really think and like restate and see like which role am I playing right now and a lot of the time you know there's the main negotiations and that's where I was acting as a party and then there are the side events um that I got to speak at and in those side events I mostly participated as representative of my organization. I can so empathize with those sort of different hats and that sort of sense of what do I what 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 can I say you know sort of from an organization perspective versus you know what? What do I sort of feel myself, and how do you how do you show up in different fora? I yeah, I think it's it's spot on that some of the challenges that you face at a COP, and and I think you said that on the sidelines that there was progress being made, that maybe you had the opportunity to be more authentic, and that you could say the things that you wanted to say versus being in the more formal settings. Was, was that an experience that you had? I think for me, it's it's not so much about not being your authentic self. You know, I, I always try to be my authentic self. I think it's more about understanding different circumstances and also understanding sort of the the precarious precarious nature in which we find ourselves at these cops. Uncle, you want to add to that? I actually want to sort of want to circle back to the point that Anna raised about the sort of conversations that were happening from the business and private sectors on the fringes, and I think that those are actually very important conversations because. One thing that really struck me was the divide between what was happening in the negotiation rooms and then what was happening in the rest of the blue zone or the zone that's kind of closed off um, in the side events and then the green zone, which is the even broader zone that's open to the public. And the zone that's open to the public really was like a trade fair. There was um, I wasn't able to participate as much because I was in the negotiations time. But in the small amount of time that I was, 
there was no really connection to what was happening in the decision-making spaces. But then in those spaces, there's, you know, so much innovation that's being presented. There's so many solutions that are being presented. And that was sort of not taken account in in, in the other space, in the decision-making spaces as well. So I think drawing those lines um, would would be very important and a good conversation to start. One of the best events I actually went to in the whole of COP was hosted by Simoon, the Center for Multilateral Negotiations, where they brought together some of the negotiators and some sort of senior political leaders like Patricia Espinosa or Norbert Garrison from Germany and others together with business leaders. And to really talk about sort of, you know, the two sides of the coin, what's working, what's not working, how can you help each other? And that to me, you know, that I was, I was talking about sort of that palpable sense of change. That to me was, was incredible to see, you know, to be in that room and to hear, yeah, just that realization that maybe we, ju- we really just don't understand so much that struggles that the other side are facing and how can you actually move that forward? So, um, that, that was one of the first times I've come across that happening. But, you know, as Ankun said, I think there is a lot of that that needs to happen much more in order to make, to make the cops really valuable in the progress that they're making. Let, let's talk about um, the elephant in the room about where COP was held. And um, obviously in the oil-rich Middle East and Dubai, and there was a lot of controversy in the media about should it really be there? So how did you, how did it feel when you were on the ground? Did it feel controversial? Did it feel breakthrough? It's a really complex question. I mean, the COP process, you know, it's a process that, you know, it, it doesn't land in an oil and gas sort of company because it's selected, you know, per se in, in, in the sense that, you know, it has to, it has to go to a certain region. And then within the region, there's a decision about where it's held, right? So I think that's sort of part of that, that official process. There were big discussions in Glasgow where the oil and gas company should be included or excluded from sort of some of the, you know, the panels and the discussions. And I think at the end of the day, um, we all know there needs to be big change in the way that the systems operate, but we're not going to make that change if we exclude these types of organizations. You have to talk to them. You have to find a way to support them in their transition and to also understand where they're at. And, you know, cause, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm definitely all for the, the phase out of fossil fuel. Don't get me wrong, but there's also sort of, you know, a transition that needs to be put in place, which needs to be just. There are people who work in those jobs. You know, there's, there's a lot of dependency, you know, the number, I mean, the amount of subsidies that goes, goes into the oil and gas space. It's not like we're going to switch off the lights from one day to the next. It's just not realistic. So finding a way to sort of constructively bring that to the dialogue, I think that's where I really sort of, you know, where I really see what I see is, is incredibly important. I was quite hesitant going into COP. I'm going to be quite honest. Um, I was really hesitant about it. But our CEO, he, he sort of, you know, we had a, a separate meeting just before the COP with bringing some of the business leaders together. And what he said to us, we said, you know, sort of in the run up to that, he said, you know, we're here to showcase the solution and to showcase what's being done and to showcase that it's possible to change. And I think that's exactly the right messaging. Yes, you could see the oil fields, sort of the sort of the, the the factories, or the, whatever you call them, the the big towers, as you were sitting, sort of you know, in the metro, going home at night, and it was sort of slightly surreal. But at the end of the day, you know, we have to transform away from these systems, so they have to be part of the story. It's as simple as that. And is the is the pace? Did you get a sense that the pace, the urgency, is truly being embraced, and that is why this cop seemed to be different, where you had more voices at the table. In the last plenary, where all the parties were, you know, gathered and all the big final decision texts were being adopted, 
Um, there was a moment when the first global stock take outcome was adopted. And so this is the text that's telling us where we're at in terms of um, whether we'll be able to achieve that 1.5 degree goal of warming, of keeping limiting warming to global warming to degrees. And, you know, the outcome of the text was first celebrated in the plenary. There was a big round of applause. And I think that was because of, you know, the, the fact that we were able to reach consensus. Um, because at that point, the COP had been extended by 24 hours, 24 plus hours even. And then followed by, by that roaring applause was an intervention given by the AOSIS chair with the, the Alliance of uh, Small Island States and the negotiating group for, for Small Island States. And I just want to read a quote of what the chair of AOSIS said. And she said, we have made an incremental advancement over business as usual when what we really needed is an exponential step change in our actions and support. And I think that kind of just captures it. That, yes, it was progress, but it was not enough of the progress that we need to really be fighting um, for, for the most vulnerable for the most vulnerable groups and the most vulnerable nations. And I think what I found really stark was that, you know, right after that intervention, the way that the rest of the plenary um, proceeded was a disregardment of that statement, really. The way that the presidency hosted the rest of the plenary was, you know, um, calling everything transformational and calling everything a big change. And, you know, that's what I mean by that they have a lot of power over framing. And a lot of what's what was said by um, the youth constituency, the constituency for women and gender, um, and all of the more advocacy groups was was disregarded in that messaging. And I think, you know, we need to be listening to those voices, those voices too. I think maybe just to, to build on that, um, you know, I mean, it's historic. For the first time, we have a, you know, the inclusion of fossil fuel related text in a in a COP um, sort of outcome, right? I mean, that that is a historic moment. You know, we're sort of 30 years too late, but it's a historic moment. But just to put some sort of fi figures behind what Nkuma was saying there, you know, they sort of there was a pledging of around 700 million uh, US dollars for loss and damages. And we know that, um, you know, sort of developing countries need around or at least 400 billion. Um, now, somebody was on one of the WhatsApp groups that I'm in was circulating quite a fun figure and said, you know, the top 10 football players globally in the world make that loss and damage fund money of 700 billion in a year. Like, I mean, it's nothing, right? And then just not to even think about the subsidies for fossil fuel companies or the, or the uh, profits that fossil fuel companies make. So everything needs to be put into perspective. And I think in that sense, you know, yes, we can be optimistic and it's, it's great to see the outcome. And there is a palpable sense of change, but in a way, it's also, you know, I'm not a negative person. It's not too little too late. Um, but it is, you know, something that's, that there is definitely room for improvement, uh, going upwards. Very, very well stated. This has been a marvelous conversation and we can continue, but I'd just love to turn it back over to you because I'm sure that there are points that you'd like to make that we haven't covered. Um, so Anna, can I start with you? I'd like to highlight two things that I did that really had a, I guess, a profound sort of sense of, of yeah, an impact on me. So I did a panel hosted by, by One Young World with Paul Coleman and a couple of other people where we spoke about leadership and what it means to be leader in today's time. And what I said in that panel and something that I mean, you know, very strongly is that, you know, sort of in a way, I don't like the word leadership. 
because it sort of implies that there are certain people who are have capabilities that others don't. And I guess just sort of, you know, to, to the people who are listening, you know, each one of us can be a leader, no matter the age, no matter what you do in life, no matter where you live. Um, you know, and I think that's what you want, One Young World really encourages, that platform of sort of diversity. But I think it's really important. And in everything that I've done in my life, the golden thread, you know, of many different areas I've worked in, the golden thread has been sort of working with people and creating collaboration in a strategic way uh, and sort of building things. That's really what I do. So, you know, and I, for a long time, I really, um, I really struggled with the fact that I'm not an activist, you know, I'm not on the ground out there. And I mean, I do in my private time what I, what I can, but, it, you know, I, I'm not an activist per se, but it's also not where my strength lies necessarily. It's not where my background lies. I understand business. I've worked with business. So trying to think about sort of where you can really bring your skill set and your knowledge to make a change. I think that's the one thing I, I sort of wanted to say sort of in terms of, you know, anyone listening to this podcast who really is trying to understand their space or the, how they fit into this movement. And I think the other thing is trying to understand your why. You know, I had the absolute privilege just a couple of days after COP to meet the Raoni, who's one of the uh, leading indigenous um, uh, sort of yeah, leaders in uh, one of the big indigenous leaders in, in the, from Brazil um, here in Paris. And sort of, you know, just seeing someone who's so much poise and so much intelligence and, you know, really fighting for basically what's his, his livelihood in his home. And, you know, that really sort of made me really reflect back on why I'm, I'm working in the space I do. So I think that for me, sort of trying to find those like-minded people and, you know, One Young World provides a platform. Uh, we have this great thing called the Hurry Up Club that um, the three really great leaders last year at Davos created um, that sort of, you know, during COP was sort of supporting each other with, you know, let's not give up and, you know, we can make a change and those sort of things. I think they really give me optimism. So, yeah, just to say, I think there's find what it is that, that, that you can contribute understand your why and how you're sort of motivated and, and you know what it actually means the work that you're doing uh, and find people who are going to support you and that you can draw energy from and that you give energy to because at the end of the day there's plenty of us who believe in that that we can make a change um, and if there's enough of us you know I think that's uh, yeah we really can make a difference. I love that that was beautifully said, beautifully said. thank you. Ankun? Yeah I also I'd also like to mention two things one of the biggest things that I got from myself out of this process was the importance of being grounded when participating in something as large and big and multilateral as, as, as COP. And I think that was really important because, especially in the first week, I kind of felt a lost sense of purpose, I guess, because, you know, what I do in the day to day is, is a lot more grounded. And, you know, while I was in Dubai in this really big conference with really tall buildings and surrounded by really impressive people. At the same time, air pollution was absolutely horrible. And, you know, there were people poisoned by carbon dioxide. There were people who, you know, who were dying. And I was at this big conference doing who knows what with outcomes with that'll come out who knows when, right? And so I think having that sense of groundedness is really important and the long-term vision of why we're on in this space and why this space matters. Um, and bringing those on the ground grassroots realities to these big spaces, but also being able to translate the large outcomes that come out to how they're impacting communities, um, and how their community, uh, how they're impacting communities today, but also you know ten years down the line and twenty years down the line, because these are decisions that will impact us, you know, many many years into the future. Um, so I think being able to work in this multi multi levels sort of way to connect those different different scales. And then the second thing is 
I guess a sort of advice for both myself and both uh, and other sort of young people who are trying to get involved, um, especially in the environmental space, is that um, to become really, really knowledgeable, the purpose and the impact that you want to make. And what I mean by this is both, you know, if it's uh, it relates to science in some sort of way, become knowledgeable about the science, become knowledgeable about uh, technology, become knowledgeable about politics, um, become knowledgeable about on-the-ground realities, um, become knowledgeable about what it's actually doing to people. And I think that's the most critical way that we can gain legitimacy and our voices can be heard, especially as young people, because if we're asked something, we can speak to the realities, we can speak to the politics, we can speak to the technical. And I think that sort of expertise, especially in young people, is missing. And that's something that I want to cultivate in myself and that I also want to encourage other people in doing. Beautifully stated. You both are amazing. I know that you're going to stimulate additional um, excitement from um, activists and, and passionate social change makers that they can make a difference and that that the size of our challenges may seem overwhelming, but when we have individuals such as yourselves, I mean, I have chills. And um, congratulations on, on just, you know, bringing your ethos and your passion to life. So thank you so much for being on Purpose 360. This is um, one of my favorite shows ever, and I've been doing this for five years, and so you've given a gift to me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carol. This podcast was brought to you by some amazing people, and I'd love to thank them. Anne Hundertmark and Kristen Kenny at Carol Cohn on Purpose, Pete Wright and Andy Nelson, our crack production team at True Story FM, and you, our listener. Please rate and rank us, because we really want to be as high as possible as one of the top business podcasts available so that we can continue exploring together the importance and the activation of authentic purpose. Thanks so much for listening.